Wow. Oh, hey there. My name's Ross, and I'm a bit of a nerd for all things nature. So a while ago, I started a passion project called well, nerdy about nature. It began as social media videos sharing cool fun facts and tidbits of wisdom about the natural world and has since evolved in this podcast that you're tuning into here. This project serves as a means to inspire, educate, and engage folks with the outdoor world so that we can all become better stewards of it and so that we can all work together to create a more inclusive, diverse, equitable, and just future for each and every one of us in this world that we all share. Because nature, it's pretty dang neat, you know? I think we should keep it that way. So come on, let's go get nerdy about nature. Take a nature walk with me, we're gonna check out some really cool trees, we're gonna hang around and talk about all those things in nature that we can't live without, let's go get nerdy, yeah, let's get nerdy about nature, nerdy, yeah, let's get nerdy about nature, baby, nerdy, yeah, let's get nerdy about nature, come on, let's get nerdy about nature. Ah, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Nerdy About Nature podcast. My name is Ross. I'm your host. And on today's episode, we're talking about the ocean, the oceans, multiple, plural, all of them, all the oceans. Me, I'm a bit particular to the Pacific Ocean because it's where I was you know, raised and where I grew up. I learned how to swim in the South Puget Sound of the Salish Sea, which is an inland sea between so-called Washington and British Columbia. Connected, of course, to the Pacific Ocean. You know, I learned how to surf down in California, up the Oregon, Washington coast to Vancouver Island, where I currently reside, and have kind of lived and played all over the Pacific Rim. You know, I've spent a good amount of time in Hawaii, Japan. I lived in Australia for a few years. And the one unifying feature of all these different places is that anytime I got into the water, the salt water, it was the same kind of big body of water, this really cool interconnected unifying thing. And I guess no matter where you are in the world, even if you're in the Atlantic, the South Indian Ocean, any ocean, it's all connected, um, not only by the the water that makes it up, but all the land that it surrounds, you know? So uh, this inland temperate rainforest that I'm in right now is intricately connected to the ocean, um, which, you know, feeds it nutrients and it feeds the forest nutrients. So vice versa, back and forth, this is really cool unifying thing that connects all of us no matter where we live. So I thought it was a worthy topic and there's no one else better to speak about it than Julia Huggins, my first repeat guest. Um, If you don't know Julia Huggins, I had her on a forest microbe episode a few episodes back. Super fun, engaging episode. We were like in the ground, digging up alder roots, looking for different microbial stuff. Uh, Really fun, super engaging. You should definitely check that out if you haven't already. Um, But not only is Julia a forest biologist, a PhD student um, with a focus on microbes, but she's currently working on a big project revolving around microbes in our oceans. So she came by to chat not only about oceans, but microbes in the ocean, how they're impacted by their surroundings and how they impact their surroundings and the way that all of this ties back into the world that we all share. So super fun episode coming up for you here and I hope you enjoy. Let's play it. Well, what's up, Julia? Back again. (laughs) Welcome back. So soon. More microbes. Yeah, that first one was just like so intense. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta talk about more microbes. Where else are there microbes? Mm. Well, this actually leads us to this lovely setting that we're at right now, because we are currently on a nice little beach here, nice rocky beach on the west coast of Vancouver Island, overlooking the ocean, which you actually know quite a bit about, it turns out. A fair amount. Although I'll admit, I'm not an oceanographer. I'm a forest ecologist from, from last time. Right. But when we <laughs> spoke last time, you had just gotten back from... 
a conference in Belgium. Yep. You were severely jet lagged. I was. Um, what was the conference about? It was a, um, a UN conference on ocean deoxygenation. And so the UN sponsors a lot of like research collaborations around the world to bring scientists together to tackle big issues. And ocean deoxygenation is a big pressing climate related problem. And they brought together um, scientists from um, all over, um, a lot from Europe and a lot of us from North America and um, yeah, we had like a week straight just to talk about all the different aspects of that issue. Some people were like climate modelers. I was, a, you know, the microbe side of things, looking at how they affect the issue. And right. um, yeah, just pretty neat to like put my work into context and talk about this like really overwhelming problem that sometimes feels so daunting, but still cool to know there's a lot of people working on it yeah right mm -hmm. and so in addition to doing all your forest microbiology stuff that you we chatted about last time yeah what other work do you do because you're working on a phd which we didn't talk about at all last time no, either secrets all these new, uh, yeah. new layers yeah. <laughs> who am i it's the biggest onion biggest microbial onion there is that's me <laughs> so about 12 layers deep you're doing a phd yeah tell me about that yeah so I am now doing a PhD in ocean microbiology, ocean geochemistry, um, even though I had no background in ocean stuff before. I was working in forest ecology, and that's the topic we talked about last time. And then I wanted to do more biogeochemistry, which is a little bit outside of what forest ecologists tend to do. I joined this lab, and my professor was like, great, you're going to do this ocean project. And I was like, what? I don't know anything about the oceans. Like currents i kind of know how those go but it's been like it's been a steep learning curve um dove right in if you will to uh oh pun intended <laughs> yeah um <laughs> yeah to the marine world and i see what you did there oh my god we're gonna do this now huh <laughs> <laughs> i mean we don't need to turn this podcast into one of those but I'm not opposed. yeah um yeah, so I've now spent five years becoming more and more. I still always, I'm like, disclaimer, not actually like a technical oceanographer. So when it, when the real oceanographers come out and have all their jargon, I'm, I gently bow out and say, I study the microbes in the ocean and the climate processes that they are regulating, not like the physical dynamics of the ocean itself. Yeah, which, uh, I mean, just thinking about that, that's so many different elements to try to comprehend. I can't even imagine that. People who do ocean modeling. Currents and water temperatures and everything moving around, changing weather patterns. Is, salinity, density, right. like they're measuring all kinds of stuff. And then there's fluid dynamics and how things mix and... It's cool, but it is, it is an entirely different thing from right. what I do. That'll be a whole nother discussion with somebody else. No yeah. offense to you. No, it's it's fine. I uh, don't. <laughs> so you work with the microbes within the ocean. That's kind of like your mm -hmm. realm of understanding. Yeah, that's my little piece of the puzzle. So like the kind of work I would do is trying to like improve our predictive ability to say what kinds of changes will happen chemically in the ocean. And then I would give my information to a modeler. Uh, okay. And then the people who build, you know, those like big climate models you hear about when the IPCC comes out with a new report, those models are built by people who use 
complex computer algorithms and take the kind of input that scientists like myself would generate saying like, here's the feedback you might expect. Here's like, if you change this variable this much, this other thing is going to change. And then they can use that information to make these global predictions. Right. So I don't model the ocean myself, but yeah, I like help figure out the kind of stuff we'd need to know about. Gotcha. Um, so what are biogeoco biogeochemical processes and yeah. why do they matter? Yeah. It's a fun word, right? We get all of biogeochemical. the... Biogeochemical. Biogeochemical. It's all the sciences. Exactly. Except like psychology, I guess. I don't yeah. Know. Fair. So it's this fun word that does kind of feel like a little bit of everything. And as a biogeochemist, I also feel like a person that knows a little bit about everything and not everything about anything you know like i'm always like dabbling a little bit in all of the fields um but the idea is like the way i would summarize it is how the living the tiny living parts of the earth interact with the non-living components of the earth and and it doesn't have to be the tiny like i'm a microbial biogeochemist i think about the tiny parts but you could also think about biogeochemical cycles um, that like fish are influenced in or like the role of um, other larger organisms, trees and plants, those would be involved. But it's like how the living and non-living components of the earth collectively influence each other and create the cycles that we, that like the nitrogen the cycle, earth carbon on cycle, a large, yeah. on a large scale. So yeah, exactly. There's like a couple that are more well known and studied um, carbon cycle is probably the most talked about these days because that is like processes that respire carbon and put CO2 out into the atmosphere. And then there's other processes like plants growing or other organisms taking in CO2 and building biomass, and that's carbon sequestration. You can also do carbon sequestration in a non-living way through like weathering rocks, like that'll pull carbon out of the atmosphere um, or like sediments in the ocean building up over time and burying those debris like that sequesters carbon. And in the long run, the balance between like the amount given off and the amount taken down changes our, our, our global atmosphere balance. And then that in turn, as we know, like has influences on the climate, habitability, what things can grow where, and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you got the nitrogen cycle, similar story, you know, there's like, what well, we talked about a little bit with like the forest stuff last time, you know, there's processes that um, take nitrogen out of the air and make it available. And then there's other processes that actually take nitrogen out of the soil and put it back into the air. And those cycles have huge influences not on like at a day-to-day -day tangible way so it's really hard to like walk around and look at the nitrogen cycle you can't really do that but over the long term those balances shift like why we get algal blooms in parts of the ocean or like why soil could have supported a lot of life and now it can't and like those kinds of those kinds of questions fall under that umbrella of like biogeochemistry right and so similar to like forest ecology like we talked about last time nitrogen i'm assuming is a limiting factor to a lot of growth especially with algae and whatnot and that's why when you have like um, a lot of fertilizer runoff heavy in, or high in nitrogen mm -hmm. content you get algae blooms that mm -hmm. are unnatural yeah exactly um not everywhere in the ocean weirdly enough in the ocean sometimes you get places that are not limited by nitrogen but actually limited by iron but 
by and large, just like the land-based ecosystems, nitrogen is is one of the, the most common limiting nutrients. And so when you get huge amounts of nitrogen input, you can alter um, how much primary productivity. So that's all the little tiny photosynthesizers in the ocean. That then become food that are consumed by other things. Yeah, exactly. And so those... Primary producers, primary consumers, secondary consumers, that whole chain, the food chain. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Which then... When we think about, like, when most people think about the ocean, why do we like the ocean? We think about fish or whales or sea lions and, like, the really charismatic... Orcas. Yeah, exactly. And those, we don't often connect to the baseline, but all their presence there is the result of a base food web that makes it possible. Because there's so many levels up, you have to have a huge baseline to support something that high up in the food chain. And so shifts down here can have pretty big impacts up there. Right. I don't know why this is a stupid analogy, but the Eiffel Tower came into mind. Mm. So it's like the pinnacle of the Eiffel Tower is like what it's known for. It's like that really cool, steep building. But it's like you couldn't have that without that wide foundation, that wide base that supports it. Exactly. Actually, like pretty accurately because food webs, we often draw them like linear pyramids, but they actually are shaped more like that where like... Some exponential curve to it kind of? Well, it's like, yeah, it's about one-tenth very like broad generalization like about one tenth of the energy from one level of the food chain makes it to the next really so, yeah wow so if you go a few levels up you're dealing with like slivers of the amount of energy when you're at like the top predator range um and if you think about it that's why you only have like a few bears or like a few wolves in a in an ecosystem relative to the number of like I don't know, mid-level animals or even the plants. Yeah, that's an interesting one to think about because like when we think about humans and meat consumption, if we're then a quote-unquote top predator, even though fucking like nobody hunts anymore, um, and consuming yeah. red meat, cow. So it's like, oh, we eat a cow, we get about 10% of that energy. Yeah, and if there's a biologist uh, loosely, out there. Loosely, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you think about how much energy it took to for mm-hmm. that, that cow to eat all the grass and everything. Yeah. It only got 10% of that energy. Then you think about all the microbes that it took to yeah. create the systems and get the mm-hmm. nutrients available for that grass to grow. It's about 10 times as much as that. Yeah. That's compounding so quickly. Yeah, totally. That's so much energy just lost. Yeah. And I mean, there's a huge difference too, depending on like the energy input of farmed meat versus like grass-fed free right, range right but that's another episode with another expert <laughs> for sure for yeah. sure i'm just but it's no it's, drawing it's connections super important. in my head as you're as you're talking about this stuff yeah no it's a really important piece of um thinking about how ecosystems work right and tell me about iron because like i've never even thought or, or considered like the, the iron cycle because most iron that i'm aware of comes from rock that's like mm-hmm. been um is it um what type of rock is it, it starts with an m oh my Mafic? no like dark igneous rock or like full of darker metal like heavier metals yeah that's where iron tends to come from right yeah my geologist friends can just like tune out for a second while i get this all wrong but yeah (laughs) (laughs) um there's like mafic and ultra mafic rocks are rocks that are dense in a lot of like heavier metals are those igneous rocks or metamorphic rocks metamorphic right because they'd be I guess it could be both. I think they can be both. Like, My I think limited, you could have, like, dark yeah. igneous rock that then gets metamorphosed and then has a new name that I don't know. But okay. um, they're just, it just has to do with, like, the content of... So, like, the opposite end of that spectrum are the felsic rocks, which are light, like, granites and, like, other, like, lighter colored rocks actually have less, um, like, heavy metal content. 
And then when they weather, it, you get other elements out of all kinds of rocks across the spectrum. And I'm going to like change this topic because I have definitely will in- admit this is the, the edge of my knowledge in that area. But um, when you get weathering, let's go back. There. That's yeah, kind of where yeah, I was yeah. going. Yeah. Like it comes from <laughs> rocks being weathered. Exactly. Rocks. Let's leave it there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the source of iron. And then it just kind of filters its way through the food chain. Yeah. So like dust is a huge, when you think about from the ocean, dust blowing off the land um, in like big air currents, getting carried out to sea, deposits a lot of these minerals and metals that wouldn't like run off in, in water in the streams the same way. And so a lot of areas in the ocean that are iron limited get iron supply from the dust. And I know this happened somewhere in the Atlantic, I think, with a lot of dust coming off of like the desert. The Sahara. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it depends on where in the world you have prevailing winds because some places Mm. the winds go onshore and others they go offshore. So all of those factors um, can influence this uh, like trace mineral deposition. And it's not everywhere that's iron limited, but some places are. And that's because iron is pretty reactive and like doesn't hang around just freely floating in the ocean water for a long time. Um, and it's a it's a necessary component of um, lots of different parts of life require like enzymes require trace metals. That's why we have to take like vitamins and supplements if we're not eating mineral rich foods is that we don't think of metals as nutrients, but they are in, in small amounts. And so photosynthesizers need small amounts of these metals to be able to build the enzymes specifically the nitrogen fixation one needs an iron little iron molecule to make it like active and work. Mm-hmm. It's got to pay a FE. How long were you, you? I was, I was brewing on that. For like, a bit, I yeah. was looking at like, you. Where, I was like, where, you're uh, not thinking about what I'm saying. No, you're like, I, I thinking was, about something I was, else. It I was could, both. I it was see both. It. I'm, I mean, I'm trying to come up with like a great <laughs> iron pun. I'm glad that landed so nicely. That was amazing. That was so bad. It was so good. <laughs> that's the best. That's the best kind of pun. It's when it's so terrible. You just like you have to spit up whatever you're drinking. Like, fuck the fuck did that guy just say? Um, so, For those listening at home, Fe is the chemical symbol of iron. Right. In case that went over your head. That yeah. was okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'll pat myself on the on the shoulder for that one. Um, okay, so moving on now. You kind of touched on it there with like dust coming off the land into the oceans, but what is the relationship between oceans and land? Yeah. Well, I th- this one is a big one for me um, because as a person who is all about forests and soils and thinking about that stuff, at first I was kind of like, not that I'm not interested or passionate about the oceans, but I, I really had a hard time at first connecting it to the stuff that I care about. I was like, Ugh but the fungus and the soil, like, why are you making me go out on a boat and do this ocean work? But the more time I spend in that, and I knew some of these loosely, but I think I've come to have a deeper appreciation of the the connectedness of the fact that like basically nothing that I knew about in the terrestrial ecosystems would exist if it weren't for its relationship with the ocean. Um, well, there's the obvious connection that I'm thinking about with forests and the ocean is the salmon input. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Primarily a nitrogen boost. Yeah, exactly. So like a huge amount of the nitrogen, in addition to the lichens and the nitrogen fixers on the trees that we talked about last time, a big input is um, these salmon, which are in nitrogen rich environments in the ocean, build up these like nitrogen rich tissues, come in and feed. There's like direct links and then in the, you know, feeding the bears and feeding other organisms that eat them. And then the bears will drag their carcasses up on land. They decompose. Some microbes play a key role in that decomposing Hey-o. the tissue and releasing nitrogen into the soil. Um, and then that gets taken up into the trees. And I don't, I don't know the number, but there's like an impressive amount of the proportion of nitrogen in some of the trees is comes from these salmon. Right. Especially like older trees where historically salmon runs were like mm-hmm. far more significant than they are these days. Exactly. Yeah. And along the riverbeds too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah and like valley bottoms. <laughs> yep. Exactly. And then additional inputs, you'd have like seabirds and stuff. Cause there's a lot of seabirds that eat and feed mm-hmm. in the ocean, then come and nest on land and, yeah, and I think more than we tend to appreciate, almost all of the terrestrial ecosystems, at least in this like coastal region, have some portion of their food web comes from the ocean or some portion of their nutrient intake, right? Like a lot of bears, when um, there's not a ton of available food, they'll come down to the coast and they'll they'll smush barnacles with their paw and lick up the barnacles or the um, the mussels and um, all the sea birds bringing you know, eating, pooping, also just like dropping carcasses um, inland. So there's a huge amount of, you know, we, we often think about like flow from land into the ocean, but there's a lot that comes back out of the ocean into the land too. Well, and have you heard of like sea wolves? Yes. I don't know a lot about them, but like yeah. wolves that spend most of their life. Right. Like, so a sea wolf, it's like a subspecies of Canis lupus. It's still technically oh, okay. the gray wolf, like the North American gray wolf. Right. Um, but there's like, and they're kind of, they're frequent around here, like more north up in right. the islands. Um, and like, again, they still can interbreed with the gray wolf. So they're not a separate species, but they generally have smaller, more wiry builds and bigger paws. Mm-hmm. And they've can been tracked like swimming up to seven miles between islands and they get over 90 percent of their diet direct from like tide pool scavenging and marine derived stuff so it's like cool and like you know they'll like full-on hunting like you would imagine wolves doing like pinning uh or cornering a a baby deer in like Mm -hmm. the forest somewhere they'll do that with like baby seals and stuff on the beach it's like it's wild to see this like kind of divergent way of like we you know yeah we tend to always associate wolves with being a terrestrial animal Mm -hmm. um but to see them like living and like finding new ways to survive off entirely you know different quote-unquote diets than we would assume they they have is pretty interesting to see yeah that's really neat actually um i don't want to go too far off on this tangent but it reminds me so there's like a lot of our our charismatic marine fauna are actually mammals that were land terrestrial animals and like right evolved back into aquatic like whales is whales. the craziest thing like, like closest relatives are like cows right basically i know who would have thought i know it's so cool um there's a really i mean if anybody feels like going down the uh the rabbit hole on this um have you ever subscribed to eons on 
on YouTube. Mm-mm. Oh my god, Eons is this amazing. I think it's a PBS kind of derivative channel, oh, cool. but they do a lot of like evolution stuff, and there's some great ones mm-hmm. on the evolution of whales and how just kind of like these big lumbering cow animal things, yeah, kind of like manatees of the land and making their way back, and then yeah. like the arms slowly mm-hmm. turn into little fins and the feet, like the legs, just j- gradually fuse together into like these two little yeah. flippers that we like. Those are their legs. Yeah. The two little flippers at the end. It's yeah. nuts. Yeah. Well, what's really cool. Um, and I, again, I'm going to just like big hand wave here. I am not a marine biologist, like a mammal person. So, um, but I know some fun stuff about them. And like one th- thing that I find really inspiring or cool was like the whales and the cetaceans, the, the dolphins, all of those have um, sort of like their radiation, their evolutionary um, shift back to the ocean happened a lot earlier. And then, um, the seals and sea lions group kind of happened more recently. Oh, really? And so they're like less further. And if you think about the, they Into spend, the evolution of being aquatic. Right. And so if you think about their life cycle, you know, they still spend most of their time in the water, but they spend a decent amount of time on land still. Right. Whereas like whales and dolphins are strictly, you have to come to the air the ocean, uh, surface to breathe, but otherwise they're like all water. And then even more recent and like kind of still on the, in the gray zone are the like sea otters, right? Which are still, they're in like the weasel family, right? And so they're still largely a terrestrial animal, but actually spends most of their time and feeds mostly in the water. And then, so when you're just talking about the wolf, I was like, oh, that's kind of neat. It's like maybe like the, like even closer to that beginning transition of like moving toward a life cycle in the water. Yeah. And it's kind of like what you were saying before, and when we chatted last time about like the forest down in Argentina, mm-hmm. about how it's like it's not a temper, it's not a conifer dominated coastal temperate rainforest, but it's still like a temperate rainforest that has like different species of trees that have come in to fill the niche that like a red cedar or hemlock yeah. would up here. Yeah. But it's just different down there because like for, you know, there wasn't that input um, of genetics to like fill that gap so other species kind of came in and did that yeah like there's roles that right. get filled regardless of drastically different ancestry deciding to come right. in and like fill that space well i think like and and speaking of that like to body morphology and like just body types that work in specific situations mm. there was an ancestral it, basically like a dolphin it like filled the role of a dolphin had like the same similar snout and everything or no hold on it's okay because I don't know. You can tell me. I'll be like, yeah, sweet. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was a dolphin. <laughs> yeah. But it was a reptile instead of a mammal. Oh, cool. Um, and it had evolved differently. Like it's it's it was its lip, like jaws came out to be forward. So it Whoa. had like it had its breathing holes were on the snout Weird. instead of on the head like a dolphin's yeah. is. But it like morphologically looked very similar <laughs> and probably had very similar feeding habits. And like that was just like the best shape of a body of a yeah. living thing to catch small fish. That's so cool. Things like that make me wish I was like an evolutionary biologist instead. I know there's so many cool elements to it. Dinosaurs mm-hmm. are, I need to get a dinosaur expert on this. That'd like I would great. geek the fuck out on some dinosaurs. We'll find, we'll find someone. Yeah. If you're a dinosaur expert out there and you're listening, <laughs> you're watching this or whatever, hit me up, please. I would love to talk about some dinosaurs. Yeah. I've got like a a friend with like a five year old kid who right now is like I am the expert I am like oh that was <laughs> yeah. that was me I was Jurassic Park is my bible um uh, we were like far off there but like yeah basically right. I guess to wrap up that thought was just that 
there's a lot of influence that the ocean has on our, and like climate wise too, the whole fact that we have a temperate rainforest, right, is all from the moisture coming in and off the land. And um, there's a lot of feedbacks, like when the nutrients from the land flow out to the ocean, it changes what happens in the ocean. And then in return, you get different inputs back to the land. So these cycles are very connected. And um, I've, like I said before, I've, I've really, my appreciation for that has really increased. I think I kind of knew that loosely, but now I like see how deeply intertwined and it's not really the clean divide I thought of before of like terrestrial stuff, aquatic stuff, marine stuff. They're like very in, involved in. Well, it just goes to show, I mean, that's, that goes back to the human, human element of like trying to put things into boxes and separate things and yeah. draw kind of imaginary lines. But it's like, where do you, where do you draw a scientists, line? We love that. We love boxes. <laughs> right. But I mean, it's, and, yeah. and it's all in like, you know, as a way mm -hmm. to understand things further. Sure. But I think in doing that, you end up kind of siloing and, and absolutely hyper-focusing on one area without realizing its relation to everything else. Mm -hmm. And there's some improvement, like systems biology started kind of with cell biologists, but it's a lot of ecologists have adopted systems biology way of thinking. Um, a lot of what I do as a biogeochemist is thinking about complex systems and feedback loops and processes and cycles and realizing like oh the way that the carbon in the fish poop is structured will change what happens to this nitrogen cycle that i'm studying and what happens in the nitrogen cycle is going to change the way the sulfur is changed and then the sulfur will change something you know and like you start realizing that you can't draw clean boxes or boundaries around any of the things that you're studying and then you get really overwhelmed and you're like, I'll never figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That moment when you realize it's just too far beyond what your brain is able to hold. Yeah. And you're like, I've been in this PhD for five years. I need it to be done. I know. I know. That's the thing is like life is so short when we think about it. Like when you think about it, the time it takes to learn something and become a... I just spilled tea on your germ. Sorry. Oh, that's fine. Um, when you like learn something, you become an expert in it, you know, and then you work in the field. It's like, you're only really working for like 20, 30 years of your like career before you retire. And then like in that time, how much can you really come yeah. to understand about these systems that are so complicated? And I think that a lot of people who do, who spend time in science will tell you too, the more you learn about it, the more you realize how little, you know, like right. I do not feel smarter at the end of my, you know, five years in a PhD, I'm like, holy crap, I don't know anything about how <laughs> yeah. anything actually works. What is going on? Yeah. Um, so what kind of changes are currently occurring in the ocean? Yeah. I mean, we hear a, a bit about a number of them and I think that we're starting to appreciate the ocean in like general dialogue a little bit more. Um, but there's a lot of stuff shifting really rapidly in our oceans. And I say that think like on geological time scales right like the oceans have changed so much throughout history since the planet formed and we had oceans they used to not have oxygen at all like they used to just be completely anoxic um well the whole planet didn't have oxygen but you know what i mean like it used to be chemically unrecognizable to what it is today for a long time so it's not that the oceans are have always been this way and now we're suddenly seeing changes they have changed but the thing is those changes happened so gradually um and maybe not there's some new work that's like other t points in history like maybe those changes actually happened really rapidly the way that we're seeing now but then the, the scary other piece of that data is like 
those times where they happened really rapidly were mass extinctions. Right. And so... Correlated with, like, some mass extinctions. And the funny thing, or not funny, the weird thing about mass extinctions, when we look back over geological time, is, like, so much of it happens over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. There's really only been one kind of catastrophic extinction event, and that was, like, the end Cretaceous period with the asteroid hitting. Mm -hmm. But, like, prior to that, like, any of the other, like, pre-Cambrium stuff, like... All of that was just like some slow change that was instigated by, you know, volcanoes or whatever it may be, some sort of change, but it happened over thousands of years and it still led to these mass extinctions. Right. And Things still weren't able to adapt quickly. And that's exactly the kinds of questions that um, people in my field, I don't actually work on deep time stuff, but those questions are exactly what people who are biogeochemists are trying to reconstruct is like, how quickly do we shift the earth from like one state into another by changing carbon inputs and outputs nitrogen input output like do those changes happen in in geologic time did they happen over like hundreds of years probably not thousands of years and even a thousand year change from the point of view of deep time is so fast so fast right and so the fact that we are seeing changes on tens of years right or you know and like we're, we're looking at probably seeing like really big potentially big changes in in hundred year times that are like that's it's hard to model. It's hard to make that fit in our understanding of what the earth does when things change that fast. Mm. Um, and and then to human scale, it's just like so far beyond our comprehension because it's like you only live, yeah. you only live 70 years on average. Mm-hmm. You're only really like conscious and paying attention to the world for 40, 50 of those years. <laughs> Other times you're like a teen or a kid or like an old person <laughs> that's just like checked out. Totally. So it's like you know mm-hmm. to be thinking about something changing so rapidly on a hundred years is like oh, i'm not going to be able to see that whatever you right. know and it's still challenging for me even as a right. person who spends a lot of time trying to think about things in those ways it's still difficult for me to wrap my head around like what a ten thousand year process means you know like i don't i can i can understand the number but i, I don't have a great personal connection to it um, so these changes that are occurring in the ocean, are those as a, like a result from climate change stuff related or like a result for the most part, but there's like, some others that are like byproducts of other climate or like byproducts of other ways in which humans are influencing the global, um, system. And so I'll start with like the, the physical changes that are happening as a result of climate change. Cause those are the ones that are most common or more like easy to think about. So we all kind of know that CO2 is warming the atmosphere and when everything warms um, gradually, right? We have fluctuations. Sometimes we get really cold, really hot. Like that's not the thing I'm talking about, but it's more the like the baseline average temperature is slowly shifting. The oceans are um, a reservoir of a lot of that heat energy. So you know how like water takes a lot longer to heat up and cool down compared to other things? As the earth warms up a lot of that heat is stored in the oceans and they might it might still feel cold but it's like half a degree warmer is a big deal from a marine point of view especially when you average that across all the massive amount of water that's on our planet that's a lot of extra heat energy so the oceans are warming up um there's some other kind of physical changes that accompany Mm -hmm. that um well and just with like the ocean warming like i'm thinking about like when you turn on a kettle and you can and it starts getting that point where the water was cold and then the bottom stuff starts to heat up you can actually see the trails of water moving faster because it's 
more closer to a gaseous form so it's mm -hmm. it's changing the currents and it's, the currents are moving yep. faster and things are mixing a lot quicker than they have in some places and then what's kind of interesting is other places they're not mixing so it's basically it's like this change in temperature even if it's just like i said a few like a little shift like a fraction of a degree is enough to affect all the fluid dynamics of these massive global scale currents um, and I'm, you know, I'm not talking about like the way that this water is churning and mixing, but I'm talking like deep ocean stuff, like where the cold water near the poles sinks to the deep basins of our ocean and is dragged along pa paths that literally cover the whole planet. And then they slowly come back up to the surface. And like these massive global scale conveyor belts keep a lot of stuff in balance. And so when we start shifting those even slightly, we can throw a lot of stuff out of whack fast. So um, some places the the mixing happens faster or more where it didn't used to. But another thing that happens is like warm water is less dense than cold water. And the water that's going to warm first is the stuff that's already on the surface closer to the warm air. And so the warm water gets warmer and mixes less with the cold water. And you get this effect called stratification where you actually get less and less mixing the warmer it gets in a lot of parts of the ocean because now this water acts like a different substance than the cold water down here and that's a big deal for like well, we briefly hinted at earlier what i work on is the loss of oxygen in the oceans because when that mixing stops happening and the surface water stops kind of regularly going down to the deeper levels and the deeper water comes up to the surface to get oxygenated yeah you don't get as much oxygen being brought down into these intermediate depths in the ocean. And then there's all kinds of other processes happening and we can talk about them a little bit, but I don't want to get too carried away on those right now. But basically you're at the same time, you're also increasing the rate at which oxygen is getting used up in the water. And so the two things work together to create bigger and bigger zones of low oxygen and in some places now no more oxygen in parts of the ocean uh, how is the oxygen getting used up quicker so oxygen gets used up when things breathe um we use we breathe oxygen and exhale as co2 right microbes do that too and the ocean water is full of microbes that are breathing oxygen even though the oxygen's like dissolved it's not like air bubbles it's like dissolved in the water um and what they are eating when they're breathing the oxygen is all of the carbon and, and organic matter that grows in the surfaces of the water and then sinks through the water. So um, algae photosynthesizers at the surface, cyanobacteria, they produce lots of carbon. Um, some of that sinks directly, other animals eat it and then poop and then the poop particles fall through the water. and as that carbon sinks down through the water, there's little microbes that are gobbling it up and breathing the oxygen. So the more productivity we have in the surfaces, the more oxygen gets used up below those areas of high productivity. And then when you increase the productivity, so up, top. up top, you increase the amount of oxygen consumption. And if you're simultaneously decreasing the amount of physical mixing, that's a recipe for running out of oxygen right. in the in those middle depths of the water. 
That sounds terrifying. It's a little scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so like there's a lot of changes and I didn't mention, you know, the maybe the more common, more well-known one, ocean acidification, right, is like a result of just increased amount of carbon, CO2, when it dissolves in water, it acidifies the water. So that's kind of a direct causal link. And we know a bit about ocean acidification. We've heard about it. We've maybe studied it for a few decades longer. Mm -hmm. But right now, ocean deoxygenation is starting to get a lot of attention. Um, and it's getting a lot of attention in the science world. And I think it's starting to get a little bit more attention in the general public. Um, but it's a big deal. And it's kind of scary because we don't know a lot about what's going to happen. Right. It's one of those things where I can almost kind of imagine some uh, some good evil henchmen, quote unquote, like an Elon Musk coming out. Like, we've got this great propeller technology and we're going to stir up the oceans type I mean, thing. I and don't it's know. Like who? Because there's so much of that happening with climate change now. There's like people talking about like cloud seeding and like mm -hmm. cooling the planet rapidly by like sending missiles of like I heavy know. metals into the atmosphere that's going to like block the sun's rays. And you're just you like, know. what? kind of world are we living in like is it that hard to yeah. just stop buying shit i know <laughs> don't even i know um, it's and it's really daunting because i mean i don't i don't put a lot of focus and like shame and guilt on the individual consumer actions anyway because like their scale isn't usually the issue but especially with a thing like ocean deoxygenation like there's literally nothing you or i can do like nothing you do in your day-to-day -day life is is consuming oxygen right. is the byproduct of like the just the system that you're forced to exist in if you want to live a, de a comfortable life well and ocean acidification too i mean like the, the there's such daunting issues like mm -hmm. how do you even begin to address changing or slowing those processes to you know allow things to adapt i struggle with that question a lot because um I think early on I was driven in my science by those questions of like, what can I do? What can I specifically solve me right now as a scientist? What can I invent that's going to fix this thing? And a lot of what I do now is I just describe the problem. And sometimes that's challenging for me because I really want the like, here's how I'm helping. Right. The but, tangible. But I guess I've like, some people have had some really helpful conversations about how the act of describing the problem in and of itself is helping because you don't no one eventually will figure out how to work with this if they don't know what they're working with and we in science we often say like we're standing on the shoulders of giants that was newton isaac newton was the first one to say that in reference to the fact that like sure i did a lot of cool stuff but only because of everyone who came before me and i think as a climate scientist right now in this era there's a lot of us sort of like accepting that we are the we're, we're the foundation like we may not have the solution we may not come up with it in our lifetime but we can at least try to create the the, the, the knowledge base needed for those who are going right. to figure out what's going to happen understand it just a little bit more or work with it i don't mean to be a nihilist about it but often i i look at like the likelihood of changing some of our economic systems and i'm like some some aspect of this is also going to be like knowing about knowing the problem so that we can help like humans and as many living components of our earth work with those changes that are inevitable at this point. Like we're already going to warm a certain amount and that's going to have things that we have to deal with. Well, and especially when so many of those economic systems are tied to the politics that would 
be necessary to change them in the first place, you know? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Which we don't need to get into. <laughs> I know. Um, You're going to have to have me back for a third one where we just rant about actually politics. Do the, yeah, the stuff that we keep trying to not talk about. Yeah. <laughs> I could be I could be down with that. I feel like all these podcasts touch on those little bits at a time. I know. Yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. I forgot what the original one was. Changes in the ocean. Yeah. yeah so there's a lot happening in this this ocean deoxygenation one is uh why why is ox or why is ocean deox deoxygenation? Deoxygenation. Deoxygenation. Yeah. Why is ocean deoxygenation? <laughs> such a big deal yeah um that's a good one because a lot of the time you can just be like okay that's like crazy and it's like that's so scary, what, some but, like, crabs are gonna <laughs> die like yeah but like what like why how is this relevant to yeah there's some tangible like directly obvious ones that i'll i'll start with um we, we experience this sometimes in the coastal communities a fish kill have you heard about this like you just have these plumes of water that come up from the mid depths that are really low oxygen, too low for what fish need. Cause they can handle like a little bit of decrease in oxygen in the water, but fish, they, they breathe it like every living organism that we think of, not all the microbes, but like most everything that you would think of that's alive respires oxygen. So fish need oxygen too. And they can handle a little bit of decrease, but when, plumes of water come up from the depths through like upwelling events a big storm or heavy winds can like push aside the surface water and it upwells this mm -hmm. deeper water or even like an earthquake or volcano activity of some kind yeah yeah i i actually don't know all of the like physical sides of, right. the, of what drives it but sometimes you get these fast rapid and intense bulges of water that have not enough oxygen for the fish to live and they rapidly fill the space where the fish are living and the fish can't swim fast enough to get away from that. I don't even know what's happening and they just suffocate and die and you can get huge kills. Um, and then those dead fish wash up on shore. And this is often like one of the tangible impacts that humans can see is like walking along the coast and seeing these big fish kills or mm, like mass die-offs of whales and stuff similar. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, porpoises in Greenland. I remember hearing a thing about that oh, a, a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't heard about that one, but yeah, like there are these kind of like just massive kills, right? And then you don't really know that's happening until suddenly they're there or you're a fisher person and you like lose your catch for the whole season or you just don't like the people who depend on those fish to live don't have their food supply for that whole year and maybe another couple years before those populations rebound. So there's, there's massive implications for um, these like sharp dramatic effects on, on marine life, but there's also more gradual shifts. So we were talking about that pattern, right? With like the organic matter falls down, respires the oxygen, it gets used up. That doesn't happen right at the surface. That is like pretty deep down, like a couple hundred meters down in the water. And most fish live above that. But as that increases and there's less and less mixing, then the zone where there's no oxygen gets wider and wider and it goes deeper, but it also gets shallower. And so what happens at the surface is the zone where the fish can live is shrinking. And that's a gradual change. That's not the same level as these like rapid kill offs. These are like decades, decade to decade. There's less and less space at the surface of the water. And so I was listening to your other episode with um, 
the person who studies salmon. Tom? Yeah. Yeah. And he, you know, his work was a lot about the stream side of things and like what happens inland, but there's this whole other part of their life cycle out in the ocean. And some things are getting better for them in the ocean, but this is one that's really affecting salmon stocks as well as lots of other fishery stocks. But it's shrinking habitat, right? Which is when we think of de- deforestation, that's shrinking habitat for, you know, our our terrestrial animals. That's happening in the marine system as well. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of like impacts in a direct way to our fish and then the fish that support the porpoises and all the other like sea lions and cute charismatic things that we love about the ocean depend on those shifts in the food chain well and not only that but like so that that little window where fish are able to live and swim in the ocean is getting narrower but then of that water there's so many other issues that we're facing like beyond Mm -hmm. even overfishing there's like all sorts of pollutants and runoff and things that are happening to that quality of habitat as well Mm -hmm. exactly and so this is a compounding effect on that on top of that the water is warming and warming is also another stressor on a lot of marine life so some scientists at the conference i went to is kind of cool to see there's a lot of um interest in people looking at the compounding effects of having like multiple stressors because organisms have ways to deal with stressful situations but when you compound them when you have multiple stressful things happening to you at the same time you get you become uh it's harder for you to adapt to each individual stressor because you're trying to juggle i mean like i do that in my own life i can't handle one event when i'm dealing with like five other stressful things right and so the warming in the water compounding with the acidification compounding with the lower oxygen compounding with inputs of pollution it's these like it's these like really um insurmountable feeling complex problems that start to emerge for the marine life well i mean and and even that little metaphor you did of like you and your daily life i can't handle one problem when i'm dealing with five others it's like these are not just like oh shucks i misscheduled this zoom meeting and like this is stressful i have a deadline it's like i'm running a marathon i'm trying to find food there's no food i'm slowly suffocating yeah there's like yeah these aren't just like minor things that you can like suck it up and push through like yeah it's it's intense to think about it from yeah from the marine organisms point of view um but yeah and so like to kind of answer like the other half of that that's a little less tangible but really important and from my point of view as like why i'm a biogeochemist i think about these these other like less tangible but really impactful shifts that could happen so i not to like say that the anything related to the fish stocks and all of the stuff we're just talking about isn't important that stuff's really important especially on short time scales of thinking about human adaptability but from a long-term point of view the impacts of losing oxygen in the ocean has a massive scale and i mean scale time and scale space implications like big scale changes in how the like whole earth cycle functions and you would you might like that's the thing that's a little hard to wrap your head around at first you're like how does this one little shift change the whole cycle but that's like what we were talking about at the beginning with geochemical cycles the intricacy of all of these things is the nature that you can't really alter one without setting the entire system off to rebalance in a new a new set of processes and so i'm not going to dive into detail but just to like kind of do a little summary you know you if you if you 
bring down the amount of oxygen or even use up all the oxygen and have a little zone where there's no oxygen left, the chemistry changes in that water dramatically. And so instead of organisms breathing oxygen, they start to breathe nitrogen compounds. Like they actually, like microbes can, can breathe nitrogen instead of oxygen. And then when they're breathing nitrogen, they're basically undoing the nitrogen fixation. So they're putting it back into the atmosphere, which means now the nitrogen budget in the ocean is decreased. And then um, if the nitrogen decreases, there's less available for primary producers on the surface to actually grow. So then which there's... Which means no plants. Which, well, no, no phytoplankton. In no, the surface. Right, right. Which means less carbon gets brought down. Right. And then that changes the carbon pump in the ocean. And then the carbon cycle gets shifted. Another thing that changes when you run out of um, oxygen is in addition to breathing nitrogen, other organisms can breathe sulfur because mm -hmm. there's a lot of like sulfate in the ocean. That's one of the main like salts other than sodium chloride. Well, and there are, there are sulfur vents and stuff down. Yeah. So there's a lot of sulfur in the ocean water. And when microbes breathe sulfur, they release um, sulfide, which is that rotten egg stinky smell. When you go low tide, that's sulfide. And that's toxic. That shit kills things in the water the fish directly, but it can also, in like extreme cases, that comes out of the ocean as a gas and it is poisonous to things on land. That's not happening at the current moment in our oceans, but in geologic time, when historically we have records of the oceans going anoxic for periods of time throughout Earth's history, it was accompanied by these massive extinctions which probably were, we think, due to the sulfide getting released. So Really? Oh, yeah. And it's it's poisonous and it kills like everything in the water that isn't adapted to sulfide, which is most stuff. Uh, um, and then in some cases, there have even been like lakes in, in the world where like the same process happens, but on a small scale. And like these poisonous gases can leak out of the lakes and kill things on land around the lake. Um, so there's like crazy chemistry that starts shifting. And again, I don't want to like go too far nerding on the like chemistry end of things here, but that's just like a, an overview of like why something like ocean deoxygenation, which sounds like just its own little thing that's happening actually has this like cascading domino effect of like, this is now toppling and that's changing. And then this is responding and that has a feedback on this other thing. And, you know, like, and that's where the the climate modeling right needs that input from us to say like here's the things that might happen so they can then try to build that into their model and make better predictions all right that was like a really long that was a, was a record ramble for me there. i don't think so i think i think you have longer ones <laughs> okay. uh, at this point but that's just like <laughs> it's a lot to think about right well i mean especially when you think about climate change like as like this big kind of intangible thing that we're all trying to fight and find ways and to solve the climate crisis and all that like so much emphasis is put on just carbon maybe some stuff with methane because it's a greenhouse gas too but like just to mm -hmm. understand the chemistry element of it and just and to see the implications of how intricately connected all of these different yeah. systems and cycles are like once one starts spiraling out of control yep like you can work on fixing that all you want but if it's like if it's causing other things to spiral out of control that have bigger impacts it's like yeah how do you divide your time is it possible it's kind of like um like permafrost melting in the arctic and like releasing frozen yeah. methane it's like 
Exactly like that. That's a feedback. That's it's a positive a f- feedback right. on climate change. Right. And so thinking about those feedbacks is something that, you know, as biogeochemists, we think about quite a bit of what's going to happen as a result of this, not just what's happening here, but what's going to happen as a result. And then what feedback is that going to have? Is that going to make that happen more? Is that going to change this other thing? And I think that that's why some people who talk about climate change are like, it's a really big fucking deal. Cause it's not, it's not maybe what it gets portrayed as sometimes. It's not strictly about the carbon. It's not just about the carbon. The carbon's like the, the thing, the driving force that we are interacting with most. And yes, if we can get some of that carbon out, it could help mitigate that. But it's not like, oh, we're just pumping carbon into the atmosphere. And then in like a hundred years, if it gets a little too warm, we'll just pull it back out. And then like, no big deal. We can undo it. And it's, challenging to communicate about the complexity of climate science in a way that allows people to realize that if we pump carbon out we maybe pull it back in but it might be too late like we might be in a new regime changing changing things that are like beyond just the carbon yeah so when it comes to like the ipcc reports Mm -hmm. um and the impacts that they outline in those like you know there's this whole talk about like trying to stay below 1.5 degrees celsius of warming um, even at that level, like how much has been calculated in like what other kind of like feedback loops we're going to set off with that level of warming? Like, yeah, we don't know. We don't know. I think that's like, right. at least when I, uh, when I get like in my little existential crisis moments, being a climate scientist is a weird freaking thing, by the way, where you're like every day, you're just like, the oceans are losing oxygen and this could have these effects. And then you're like, did I just write that sentence and I'm going to like go have a cup of tea now and be like, anyway, try to chill out, listen to some music. Yeah. It's a weird thing to interact with those, that information regularly. Um, well, it's like, it's so visceral. Like I don't think any species on our planet has been so acutely aware of being like responsible for its own demise potentially. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, people hear that like, oh, it's fine. It'll be a little bit warmer. Like, we'll just have to eat different things. We'll have to find different ways to grow. Like, I like it if it'd be a little bit warmer. It's like, you don't. Yeah. It's not just like the warming is like the most baseline tangible way for us to relate to what's happening. But like what is happening is so much bigger and grander than that. It's like it's going to impact. It's not just like, oh, yeah, sweet. You get to wear um, flip flops a month earlier. Exactly. (laughs) It's like you will not have anything to eat. Like who's to say what's going to happen to like the chemistry of the air at that point? Like Mm -hmm. because all this because like we're talking about like we're talking about forests in the first one, talking about the oceans, the way that that is changing Mm -hmm. just now. But like surely all this has got to have an impact on the oxygen and the air we breathe like the whole mm-hmm. makeup of the uh, of the atmosphere like yeah there's i don't know a ton about like the feedbacks potentially on oxygen and wh- how long of a time frame that would be till it could potentially impact our ability to like breathe and live um that is actually a really interesting question i don't i don't know if people are modeling that work or like trying to figure that out um but the the th- the thing I said earlier, just like kind of to reiterate that point is like, we don't know. We just don't know those feedbacks right now. And before I had my little <laughs> breakdown moment there for a second, what I was saying is like, when I really stop and think about that, when I like stop and pause and comprehend the sentence that I just wrote that has become so commonplace to me, the thing that really strikes me is how little we have a grasp on 
the, these shifts that are occurring and what unexpected changes might come as a result of them. And it's that not knowing that's scary, right? I try to embrace not knowing in my life and like not try to like focus on having control. But the reason not knowing is scary is that you don't know how to prepare. You don't know what to anticipate. You don't know what's going to come out of where for you. And I think that that's the, the next few decades or at least the next couple hundred years of what humans are going to be grappling with is a lot of like, we don't, we don't know currently what to even expect might happen. Um, and so when I talked about my role as like, my job is to like better describe the problem is that's kind of my contribution, right? Is like, I'm trying to say, here's this thing that seems to be happening. If we let that keep happening, here's what we might expect. Right. And that's my contribution is to be like, here's some shit that might go down. And I don't even know for <laughs> sure, but like, and, and if the li the limited bit of shit that you do know is yeah. going to happen, then like, imagine all the things we don't know that could happen. Exactly. That's what's terrifying. It is. Mm -hmm. this is uh, I'm sorry. This is like a depressing episode. No, it's fine. Okay. This is a sea palm. <laughs> it's a type of brown algae um, It grows here. And it looks green. I know. I love these. They're, um, they look like little palm trees, hence the name, sea oh, palm. Yeah. But so, I just have a question about this. I know you're not... Um, <laughs> I told you not to ask me a question about the <laughs> Generalized question. <laughs> so, there's a lot of effort towards going or growing more kelp and re restoring mm -hmm. kelp beds and stuff um, mm -hmm. in the oceans, which have been lost for numerous different reasons mm -hmm. um, as a climate change solution because they sequester and store a lot of carbon. Then, theoretically, mm -hmm. when they die, they fall down to that... Um, uh, that anaerobic area in the ocean that you were talking about where they would theoretically not get not, as well not decompose but just hold on that and keep that carbon out of there mm -hmm. um, if you're saying that like what you're saying is that if more things are growing up in that upper trophic area dying and then falling down to that anaerobic area mm -hmm. uh, that's bad because then you have microbes down there that are going to be eating or decomposing this stuff and releasing so what you're describing right now is exactly one of the questions that people working on ocean deoxygenation are are trying to figure out is what feedbacks happen when you run out of oxygen in those mid depths and we know we know multiple things that do occur but what we don't fully know is which of those has the greater impact so is it a is it because there's less oxygen now at those depths maybe not as much carbon will get respired so more carbon will will be buried right in the sediments and when you bury carbon it is effectively taking it out of the atmosphere and maybe that has a net negative effect on climate change and if you are you know the, the microbes are, are respiring nitrogen instead of oxygen then there's less nitrogen then you get less growth then maybe that means less oxygen gets used up you know maybe that's a different impact that could have a positive effect on the amount of climate change that occurs. And then there's like, you know, more complicated feedbacks that involve multiple steps that could in depending on which step is dominant, either have a positive or a negative feedback on climate change. So in terms of its direct impact on climate change, we don't really know. It could be both of what you're saying. It could be both. We bury more carbon and we consume more oxygen. So on one hand, we're we're burying more carbon that's helpful which is a good thing but on the other hand we're also respiring more oxygen it's a bad thing probably yeah especially if it like gets out of control a lot of things like 
at low oxygen can create a demand for more oxygen so that you can like the very fact that there's low oxygen in and of itself can like make you go even lower. So there's some weird possibilities there. And I wish I had answers for you, but you're asking questions that That's are fine. exactly what geochem biogeochemists are like thinking about and wondering about ourselves right. and trying to do experiments to learn more about them. Well, good on you. Well, maybe it's a, it's a daunting career choice. <laughs> like I said, I didn't actually choose the oceans. What? I'm like, wait, I wanted to see the fungus yeah. in the soil. <laughs> well, what, what can people do to, um, help further that type of research and further an understanding? Like what, what can, yeah, I like think you were saying, like, you know, there's a lot of things that people want to do to try to solve these problems. But like right now we just need to, well, there's a lot of that we need to do to work on understanding them to begin with. Yeah. I mean, a big one for me is just talking about it. Um, and like you could, you know, you can bring that to like the politics realm and vote and all that. But I mean, voting is important. It's just often for me, it feels a little futile these days. Um, right. So there's that, but I think just, I don't mean it in like that sense, but like just talking about it generally, like with people, you know, or like when you hear about ocean acidification, like increasing awareness that there are these other less tangible, but still really important shifts that are happening in our, in our world right now. And like, bringing the nuance of the climate change conversation past the carbon piece. Right. And not just saying like, Oh, CO2 increase or withdrawal. And like, that's important. That's definitely a valid and, and, and real piece of it. But sh shifting that conversation, like climate change is global system change. It's all of these cycles that sustain life shifting in ways that are um, also really important. And so kind of like, working those into your conversations if you're a really fun person like me who just brings that up at parties and is like so anyway you know about the oceans well it's funny because i remember when the the topics or when the discussion shifted from using the term global warming to climate change mm. and now it's almost kind of like we have it's like cycles change earth change mm -hmm. it's like global change yeah global systems change yeah but like more than just like the kind of natural change that's happening all the time this is like rampant borderline uncontrollable change mm -hmm. and where do we fit within that yeah and like also talking about the fact that we don't know is kind of like it's scary but it's humbling and i think it for me at least it it reminds me why what we all do is important because it's that not knowing piece that's why we need to fund research and things that don't have sort of tangible immediate results you know we're, we always want to fund things that are like here take this money and go find a way to fix this thing and come back to me with a solution to it and it's a lot harder to appeal as a scientist for funding that's like hey fund me to spend 10 years going out to sea collecting samples and monitoring these like gradual Just shifts to know things because right yeah. like and and i can over time like explain that's why it's important as scientists to be able to explain why what we do matters but it's it is hard if the general public doesn't know why that kind of research does any good right you know um yeah i don't know i wish there was like some little like recycle your bottles i could say but there's not really an equivalent for that with some of these like massive <laughs> system level yeah. thing um and I guess the other piece that I think about a fair amount is like, uh, like shifting the way we think about these cycles too, to remember how interconnected it all is that like, yeah, we're living here in, 
so-called British Columbia or what you know whatever space you live in and how you call it but we have these like ideas of borders and boundaries and delineations that are entirely constructed by humans like that doesn't really mean anything in terms of the the role we have and the impact we have we i think more in like what watershed am i a part of where does my pollution run out to like this food that i'm eating where did it grow and what carbon like input is that coming from because if that's being imported from some other part of the world like there is no boundary that has any meaning right. like the 49th parallel it's, Purposeless. it's like yeah. not even a thing that's why i always not even like on a geophysical scale it doesn't actually mean right I mean, there's not a it's an arbitrary line that two countries quote-unquote countries <laughs> agreed upon in a term that's why I like to refer to, like, I'm always referring to Cascadia, like the bioregion of Cascadia, which is mm -hmm. essentially like the coastal region of, like, you know, Alaska down through Northern California and everything within the Columbia, or, yeah, the Columbia Basin, the Basin. watershed, which mm -hmm. is, like, huge when you look at that. That goes, like, mm -hmm. way up past, like, Kamloops and Revelstoke into Idaho, Montana, like, Wyoming. down south. Right. Oh, yeah. We, it's got Wyoming in yeah. there. Is it yeah. the Snake, the snake no. River? Yeah. That's yeah. epic. Yeah, when my like, brother pees in the river, it flows out here. Exactly. Like, so all these impacts that, like... <laughs> Miss you, Ryan. <laughs> everything that we're, like, um, talking about, and, like, when we are considering what's happening on a local scale, and this is ours, like, draw the line, and yada, yada, our jurisdiction to operate, you don't have right here. It's like, we all have rights here because it's all connected. And, like, that's just looking at it from, mm -hmm. like, one watershed site scale. Like, you know, you just, like, the Columbia River Basin. Mm -hmm. It's massive. Any mm -hmm. bit of rain or snow that falls there, like, drains out the mouth of the columbia yeah. and has impact over this whole coastline and i don't know i think if we as a species thought more in these kind of like bioregion type yeah thinking patterns like you you would have a closer connection and realize that like it's not just yeah like south of the border is like i don't know yeah yeah totally it's and different like, and like yeah, your impact on your in your local watershed scale or like um, your food shed or wherever like, you know, you're immediately consuming from. And then also thinking about the ways that your little micro scale environment connects to these massive global cycles that we've been talking about, too. You know, like, yeah, I'm not the sole driver and like our watershed isn't the sole driver of oxygen loss, but it contributes to it. And so the amount of fertilizer runoff that we allow farms to apply to their crops that go into the tributaries that feed into the Columbia or the Fraser or any of our other ma massive rivers that go out there, there's rapid oxygen loss happening. And actually, I didn't even mention this, but it's kind of why we, why I wanted to come out here and sit here and have this space in addition to coming out here is the fact that right behind us this region the northeastern subarctic pacific oceanographers love their acronyms NISAP. um <laughs> i say that i'm gonna get in so much trouble i'm like yeah. i am supposed get to be an oceanographer little, little judgy over here like it's just because of the years that i spent going right. i don't know what any of these freaking words mean and right. everybody around me knows what these are that's just the name for this part of the ocean that basically is like in that area between Northern California and Alaska, like that whole zone is one of the parts of the world that is most rapidly right now losing oxygen. So this area is not yet anoxic. Like the, that middle part of the water hasn't gone anoxic, but it is so close. Really? There's some other parts 
further south, so like the tropics near um, off the coast of Mexico and off the coast of Peru and Chile, those areas have already gone anoxic, but they've had intense oxygen loss going on for a while. This area hasn't been historically like doesn't doesn't lose oxygen as rapidly, but it's losing oxygen relatively faster than almost anywhere on the planet right now. It's really? like one of the biggest drawdowns. And it's a huge zone. So if this area goes anoxic, it has the potential to sh- have these like global scale right. shifts. It's like not just a huge zone spatially, but like within the f- food chain, the web of life, like so, so productive, these yep. waters. Yep. And you think about like the migration of like humpbacks and gray whales, like up mm-hmm. here, like, they, like, yeah, they come up here to feed. Right. It's why the water doesn't look so shiny and pretty because it's full of so much primary productivity. Like it's not those crystal clear blue waters, but that's beautiful life in action, right? And these waters are in the process of shifting really rapidly chemically right now. So that's just another thing to think about. Like, you know, anyone anywhere in the world who's listening to this, you're, you are in a watershed and it has an impact somewhere to an ocean. Even if you're in the middle of a continent and you've never even thought about oceans, you're connected to an ocean somewhere. But we here are like having direct impacts on a really big and important part of the ocean, the global oceans. Yeah. That's, um, Sorry, I feel like I'm just like heavy doozies on no, after the it's, other. It's I'm good. Like... It's good. Cause it's a, it makes you think. And like, that's kind of like one of the things that like drives me nuts about like the current political climate is cause we're, it's so easily separated from BC, from Canada, from Washington to Oregon, to mm-hmm. Idaho, to us to Canada. Like, it's just like, it's like, Oh, they do their pipelines. Like we we have our own thing. It's like, Oh yeah. It's like, and even the pipelines aside, like, I mean, like you look at like just the, the, all the runoff and, and kind of minor pollution from agricultural use in Washington, mm-hmm. uh, especially like Northern Washington into the Salish sea. And then like down in the more urban areas, like the amount of mm-hmm. runoff from city pollutants, like mm-hmm. six PPD queen on tires. Like it's, it's massive. Mm-hmm. And to be like, Oh, well that's the U S problem. We don't need to think about that. We're up here or vice versa <laughs> to be like, Oh, Canada has that whole pipeline thing going on. We don't care about that because we're, it's like, it's all the same water. It's all the same water. It's all the same climate. It's all the same continent. It's all the same. Like those borders are such artificial constructs. They just, and they're really debilitating to our ability to like problem solve and think creatively when you think in in delineated borders like that. Um, Yeah. So you want to hear? This is a thing that I've like. Is loosed. it a pun? I don't want. No, it. it's no puns. <laughs> <laughs> if a, an opportunity for a shitty pun arises, I will jump on it. Go, just full disclosure. That's all but right. um, no, this is a concept. Like, just thinking about like how with the IPCC report and everything happening, like politics is like the real big hurdle that we all face in like actually creating any positive change for the mm-hmm. oceans agriculture economically whatever it is it's like politics is this one thing that like is just so difficult to have any change especially when like yeah. things are changing every four years and it's always myopic values to get into office for like some sort of polit- some sort of economic yeah. ties yada yada mm-hmm. and i'm like i hate technology like i it drives me nuts that I even have a thing that's associated with hooked up. with Instagram. I know, I, but like the way it goes, like I have some serious qualms with uh, and questions, concerns with the quality of life and the future generations that are living. From, we don't need to get into that. Mm-hmm. But the one area that I do support in theory, this element of technology is like 
we live in a point today when we live in a quote-unquote democracy and technology is so rampant nearly everybody has mm-hmm. iphones and it's like okay we're forced to have an iphone to have like a vaccine passport to go anywhere mm-hmm. if you're going to be forcing everybody to have this technology why is that not a government subsidized thing where everybody just has these phones and if that is a thing what if our voting element became just on our phones. We voted for each subject as individuals in a true democracy instead of voting for politicians as pawns who get in on some sort of like platform that they're arguing for to like waste their four years mm-hmm. holding off on one subject while they make some people happy there to, to maintain their power. It's like the whole political structure has had to have people voted into offices to run that like mm-hmm. they've had to do that in the past when it's like you were representing an area where like there was no connection and you were kind of like trying to mm-hmm. amalgamate people's values into something tangible but in this day and age again if the government is going to force you to have it for a vaccine passport mm-hmm. why don't they just give it to everybody give everybody this amazing technology we have in these phones so that we can vote on each issue per issue and not have to like be like, oh, well, you know, I really care about my taxes, but, you know, this is important. So I'm going to yeah. like, or not even taxes. I don't think people think like that. It's, yeah. it's more the opposite. It's like people are like, oh, I really care about the oceans and like saving old growth. But like, you know, my taxes are important. Yeah, I know. Because like, I got to save 50 bucks. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I hear you. I like, mean, talk about empowerment. If we could get to that stage where it's like, yeah, then it becomes a, an issue of like education and like political affiliation just goes out the window because then it's like, what do you care about? Mm-hmm. You know, I think you would find a, a lot more common ground than we totally. than you think we probably have too. Well, because then like the abortion issue would just be about the abortion issue and it wouldn't be about all Which the other party? liberal conservative mm-hmm. stuff. It's like you can just you can talk about that without getting into all these party affiliations. And yeah. it's like, I think. I think about this stuff more than I'm supposed to. If my professor's listening, I'm sorry. I only think about science, but I think about this shit so much. You're not on the clock right now. <laughs> yeah, actually, he doesn't know I'm here. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, this idea of, like, direct democracy and um, direct decision-making through consensus is a really valuable idea. And it what you're describing sounds, like, very powerful. Could it come into existence? And where I kind of start in like a middle ground with something like that, an idea like that is <laughs> rather than like trying to pass some law at the top level to instant to implement such a process that would then be on all our phones, like kind of doing like a paradigm shift of like that top down power isn't really working for us right. anyway. So rather than waiting or like trying to like, beg them to implement something that then allows us all to like make decisions and voice and our have feedback. Opinions, yeah. Let's just freaking start connecting and collaborating and, and make decisions collectively within the groups that we can connect to anyway. And if technology is one of those tools that we use to collaborate and, you know, um, you know, share ideas across different networks and different places. So I can collaborate with people who aren't physically close to me but i could still share ideas and and um and uh stand in solidarity with people in other places the tools are there right and we can start doing that now and you know i'm gonna be cautious about advocating for full anarchy here but you know what i mean we can to a certain degree take (laughs) some of that power into our hands now like we can at this moment say like we are a community we can decide that this is how we want things to happen here and in this space together and we don't need to wait for some top-down authoritative permission or or 
or stepping in and trying to stop what we're doing. Like we, we decide what we want for our community right. now, not totally. waiting for you to do it. And I love that. I think, I think that works really well on smaller scales where yeah. you are able to like gather people together, especially in like, you know, there's that age old thing where it's like villages over a hundred just don't work. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, if you don't know everybody and then like, how are you supposed to like run or manage a community? Mm-hmm. But like when thinking about bigger things like this, I know what was it called? Mass. N- Nap. NESAP. NESAP. Like NESAP. When you think about NESAP, it's like, how do we unite the person up in Skeena, BC, mm-hmm. like up on the Skeena, to the person down, like not only in the Columbia, but further south than that? Like you get into Northern California. Like, how, how do we unite all these different people? And then even then, so all those people on the left coast, right? Mm hmm typically liberal and then you you know how do you unite them with like the guy in idaho who's like got 80 guns and is like Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah cross-pollination and talking i mean i'm a big advocate for talking to people that you don't see eye to eye with it can be hard it can be super emotionally activating to hear people say things that you feel like deeply threaten your safety and way of life so i'm not advocating that for for anybody that doesn't feel comfortable doing it but for those who have the you know the privileges and capacity to be able to hold those conversations across ideal idea boundaries um really trying to make those connections and like see the humanity in people and like i mean i'm from wyoming i go back home i'm the like liberal city kid who believes in climate change or whatever some in some of those communities um but it's important for me to try to relate to people there and not because i'm trying to um i'm not trying to reinforce harmful things that like might be said or done there but because if i don't talk to them and no one else talks to them because we don't agree with them then who will no that idea is never gonna get out there you know and so i think like for those who are on the left end of this political spectrum or wherever you think you are like the only way you're ever really gonna improve awareness around those ideas or bring more people into those causes is by like communicating those alternative solutions to that person right so instead of them only being exposed to right-wing solutions to whatever economic issue they're facing showing them like there's another way to think about this there's these other things that might help in a different way and maybe they might serve you more than the system that you've been in because you just didn't know like a lot of these folks don't even know there's another way to think about these issues or don't think about the fact that the river runoff gets to the ocean you know and i'm not not trying to say that like in a patronizing way or anything but like there's a lot of people that just don't have the experiences they haven't traveled to have that exposure it's beyond the scope of awareness and i think i think that's a huge thing like when we talk about coming together over like what have historically been like such divisive times especially in the states with like post-trump era thing like Mm -hmm. or maybe pre-next trump era who knows exactly right but like that's just become such a galvanizing thing where it's like if you're on the left to even have a conversation with anybody who voted trump regardless of why that what their reasonings or anything may be yeah it just does such a disservice because it's like all you're doing is alienating more community that like you're sharing it's like your neighbors you know totally i mean and like i just want to add in like i said it before but just to reiterate that's for something i believe for myself as a person who feels safe doing that right totally because it is a privilege to be able to have that to be able to have those conversations totally and an element of those conversations comes down to having uh, an equal party on the opposite end who's willing to actually discuss and engage constructively mm-hmm. in those conversations mm-hmm. um, i mean i see 
my personal experience like with the whole nerdy about nature thing is I get so many trolls and people mm-hmm. coming in saying ridiculously cruel things and like not even like having the space to engage in a conversation about like what I'm trying to talk about or mm-hmm. like you know it doesn't matter what sort of papers I quote or what data or anything it's like oh but I learned this blanket thing in the 80s and I'm sticking to it and like there's no way I'm going to change my mind it's like it's impossible to argue with people who are just like hell bent on being right and not hearing anybody else's way yeah but at the same time if there are people there who you can like relate to and and kind of build a common ground and share values Mm -hmm. back and forth like it goes both ways like I think that's like a really constructive healthy place to be in I think we need to do more of that like totally more of those like awkward uncomfortable situations that like Mm -hmm. not everybody wants to get into because that's where like growth happens yeah and the more you stay in your silo and just kind of subscribe to the same stuff you've been subscribing to like Mm -hmm. on both sides like the left and the right you know it just further alienates you from other people who have ideas and like ultimately we all live in this world together and all have to share this world together so you better get a comfortable mm-hmm. and acquainted with those ideas because yeah. yeah they're out there regardless totally i think um yeah a big piece for that for me is like when when i do have conversations with somebody like you described that's not really even open to considering the things you're saying yeah they just want to yeah, yeah well i've found that like well, maybe not like with somebody who's like an internet troll and that level of an on- anonymity that removes the humanity from right. the interaction, but like and internet trolls are the worst. Yeah, so maybe I don't <laughs> People know. People on the internet are pretty pretty terrible. I found it's true. I'm on the internet. So I'm the worst. I, I mean, like the I'm way too, people I'm act kidding. on the internet. Are you like the kidding. ambiguous <laughs> Facebook ranter that leaves like yeah. oh, page long rants on the community boards? Yeah, but I think like about so, the like, new stop sign on Fourth Street. With the exception of those, like, maybe extreme cases, there's a lot of folks that you can, like, interact with who maybe are in that place in a real-life way, but there's a little bit more humanity when you're having that interaction in person, and and um, <laughs> it's, it is a very challenging thing for me as a data-informed person who likes to make decisions based on data <laughs> or input and and results or something like that to not give into the impulse to counter everything they're saying with a well but technically well but that's not how this works but here's what the the information is you know like that's the impulse that i want to have and what i've found is like way more effective is just stopping that and being like it's scary yeah like not having enough money to provide for your family if you feel like that's your role if that's where you've learned your value as a human comes from is your ability to provide for your family and you don't have it, that's a scary feeling. Totally. I get that. And then just like sitting there with them. Right. right? And not even trying to make my case anymore and just being like, just listening. Yeah. That's a really scary experience. I don't, I don't agree with the position you have, but I can, I can validate the feelings behind the position you have. Right. And I think we forget that there's a difference between validating the emotional experience someone's is having versus validating the conclusions they've come to. Right. And we can just sit there with them and be like really real in the humanity of it. And not every time, but sometimes there's this reciprocal opening up of like, so why do you, why, why do you do what you do? And then I get to be like, well, based on my experiences, the thing that's scary to me is this stuff that's happening in the ocean or whatever, right? Like I've listened to their humanity and validated their experience. And then maybe there's a little bit more space for this perspective that before they were like ready to block right. out at any chance. Right. And I think like that's the thing, like between all of the different diversity of 
people that we have um not only on turtle island but like around the world you know like diversity and experiences backgrounds values all of that like when you break down the details of who you voted for in 2008 Mm -hmm. and what you ate for dinner last night and what your favorite beer is like all these little things that like everybody kind of identifies Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. some way or another um like really there's like the uniting thing are these emotions where it's like uncertain times we're all scared we all want the best for like our families and loved ones we all want to like feel Mm -hmm. successful be happy like you know afford to be able to take a day off and like hang at the beach from time to time it's like everybody has loosely like the same kind of like yeah wants and demands it's just a matter of like the way that they've been executed is different for every person and that's fine but we need to like get past the nitty-gritty of like the details of who and how every person identifies and realize that like we're all kind of craving this like yeah feeling of security and like worthiness and like love like being valued totally and another thing that gives me compassion in those really difficult moments is remembering that a lot of folks are not even if they if they've chosen quote unquote chosen a position that is i believe harmful or dehumanizing to me or someone else um to remember that a lot of the time there's some manipulative bullshit behind the scenes some like gross gross stuff that is going on to feed these ideas to folks that are right vulnerable and, and a lot of intergenerational trauma in that sense especially with like racism stuff where it's like i i'm i just say these words because my dad said that and my great dad said that and like he just it's like like i feel like a lot of racism and bigotry is generational like yeah totally at and, its basis and like that doesn't make it any more okay no, no, but it gives not me at all justifying it to I, be clear i hear you i just also like need to right. you know like it's it's such a fine line to firmly absolutely say this is not okay right and i have empathy for your humanity and i want to meet you in this space right and again because i'm able to and some days i'm not some days i'm like i actually don't have the capacity to sit here and have you imply that hear this bullshit i shouldn't be a scientist because i'm a woman and i should be at the house like there are days where i don't have the capacity you know i have most privileges of the ones that are out there but there are days where i don't have the ability to have that conversation but when i do i can it's hard but i can try to firmly say i don't condone anything you're saying and i'm going to sit with you and still try to have this conversation from a place that is human because i believe in all humans humanity including yours you know if i'm going to say i stand for anti-dehumanization that includes people that i vehemently disagree with right right? totally and that has at least as a person who cares about these ecological issues has been hard but the only thing that's ever seemed to be successful we ramble in facts about climate change or trying to spout out whatever letters I have before or after my name. I'm a PhD. I'm a this, I'm a that. No, nothing is ever effective in those areas. It's like just the human connection that seems to bridge that gap. But yeah, I don't know. It's easier said than done. I'm not good at it all the time. No. And, and I don't think it's a matter of being good at it all the time. I think it's like you put your effort in where you can. Like, even if that's sometimes once, you do it once. If that's all you can muster, that's better than nothing, you know? Mm -hmm. But I think it takes everybody kind of at least being conscious of that and stepping into that, like, role of just trying to, like, build bridges and communicate with people who you might not necessarily talk to in your normal life. Yeah, totally. Because that's the only way we're ever going to get through all this together, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, as a scientist, a publicly funded scientist, I feel 
like that's a really important piece of my job slash our job for other scientists is like having those conversations and not just being like isolated in our ivory tower of like oh i'm so much smarter i don't have time to deal with you know it's like i have encountered those types of scientists and they're the worst oh yeah i work with them um this tide's coming in pretty high here (laughs) it's almost to the chairs now um i think this is a good way to wrap this up i I really i think that's some really good insight that you just kind of laid down there and i think a lot of people can get a lot from that and learn thank you for coming here and chatting oceans with me absolutely this little um sea palm stoked yeah like a little headbanger it's a little drier (laughs) what's up yeah it is dry well it's on its way out Thanks for the uh, excuse to get out to the island again and um, pretend I'm not a student this weekend. Of course, of course. Is there anything else you'd like to add or anywhere you'd like to direct people for like more information mm, or places they can go to support um, this type of research? I will um, follow up with you. I'm sure there are some websites that I should know to direct people to. I don't know them right now. (laughs) Well, we will include those websites uh, in the show notes on this podcast, wherever you're watching, viewing it. Um, Yeah. And if you haven't checked out the first one that we did talking about forest Mm -hmm. ecology, um, that's a banger. Like we dig up all the roots and stuff. It's I'm so stoked on that. That was so fun. It's fun. Always microbes. Microbes are a good time. Right. Yeah. Thanks for coming on again and, and sharing about microbes. Thank you for having me yet again to ramble for more time about microbes. <laughs> it's it's been great. It's great. It's amazing. <laughs> thanks, Ross. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining me for yet another episode of the Nerdy About Nature podcast. I believe this is episode number 10 now. So, you know, I'm in the double digits now, just steadily growing, slowly putting these things out as I have the time to. So I hope you're enjoying them. Um, I really, really hope you're enjoying them. And if you are, you can do me a solid by liking them, giving them a five-star rating, sharing them around to all of your friends and family, getting more people to listen to this stuff. And if you're liking not only these podcasts, but all those fun educational videos I have all over social media that help to educate, inform, inspire people about the world around us, get them to think differently about the world that we all share together, you can help support their production by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash nerdyaboutnature. Patreon is this really amazing resource that helps give me the month-to-month financial stability to just keep putting more energy into this. And as an independently funded passion project, it relies on support from folks like you. So, you know, I personally, I love doing this stuff. I would love to keep this growing, um, but, you know, it takes quite a bit of effort and energy. So if you're so inclined... Uh, you know, if you're enjoying the stuff, feel free to support it over there. And if not, no worries. You know, I'm just stoked to have you along here growing and learning with the rest of us because, you know, we're all in this thing together. So hope you enjoy this week's podcast. And I hope to catch you in another couple weeks here with another great guest who I've got lined up. And uh, I'm going to keep that one secret, but uh, stay tuned. <laughs>